is Fatina, and you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Hey, crime fam. As you could tell by the intro, Mackenzie could not join us for today's recording, but we still wanted to be on time and kick off spooky season right with some spooky stories. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the tales. Today's episode will be somewhat of a medley. I have a spooky story, a little bit of a dive into an urban legend, and then I'm excited to share with you a listener's story. The listener's story had a true crime component to it, so I did some research into that part of it as well, and I'm excited to share it with you. So this is obviously a little different because I am recording by myself. There's no one to laugh at my corny jokes. I don't think I'll have that many because I want to keep that ambiance of creepy and spooky. This is my absolute favorite time of the year. My house is already decorated. If all goes as planned, this should be an episode that came out on October 1st, kicking off October. It's my birthday month, so I'm excited to share with you guys some giveaways. It's my birthday present to you. So be on the lookout for those giveaways. I think more than likely they'll go on our Instagram page. Okay, I'll be honest. It's a little weird to be sitting here by myself and telling you spooky stories. I'll probably end up creeping myself out. So with no further ado, I'll just get started with the first story. The first story is the urban legend of Clara Crane, also known as the Candy Lady. Clara Crane was born in Texas in 1871. She ended up marrying a man 20 years older than her. His name was Leonard. Leonard was a farmer. Together they had one kid, a little girl, they named Marcella. And they called her Marcy for short. Leonard had a bit of a drinking problem. And in one day in 1893, Marcy was five years old at this time, Leonard was out on the farm working. Unfortunately, little Marcy went out to the farm and there was a tragic accident. I'm not quite sure exactly what type of accident it was, but unfortunately, little Marcy lost her life that day. There was a full investigation There was a full investigation on whether or not Leonard was going to be held responsible for Marcy's death. The investigation concluded that no, he did not have any responsibility in the eyes of the law. Clara was of course devastated at the loss of her child. She became withdrawn and depressed. Although the law found that Leonard was not responsible for little Marcy's death, Clara held him responsible. He had been drinking that day, and maybe if he hadn't, little Marcy would still be alive. Two years after that incident, Clara decided she didn't want to be with Leonard anymore. So she plotted to kill him. She chose to poison some homemade caramels and fed them to her husband, Leonard. Leonard passed away on a Friday afternoon. Saturday morning... One of Clara's neighbors stopped by her house and she saw that Clara was trying to start a fire up next to the house. She asked her what she was doing and she couldn't respond. 
According to the neighbor, Clara was in a shaken and frenzied state. The neighbor, of course, called the sheriff's department. When Sheriff Deputy Fred Springer showed up to the house, Clara became physically aggressive. He took her into custody, and shortly after, they found her husband Leonard dead in the house. They charged her with first-degree murder and was facing up to a life sentence. While she was awaiting trial, it was confirmed that she was suffering from mania. This meant that they probably would have some leniency on her and not give her a life sentence. An entire two years would go by before she was tried and convicted of the murder. But because of her recent diagnosis of mania, instead of the life sentence, she was committed to the North Texas Lunatic Asylum. So Clara was admitted to this hospital. Clara, once there, she ripped up her bed sheets and made a rag doll. She named this doll Marcy. She would talk to it. Staff said that they would hear her talking to it, singing to it, and calling it Marcy. It seemed that she had made this doll and 100% believed it was her daughter. And we know this from a letter that Clara wrote to her sister, Aggie. The letter reads, Dearest Aggie, I am elated. I've been informed by Dr. Matthews that Marcy and I will be returning home in less than three weeks. As you can imagine, Marcy can barely contain her excitement. Every night she asks, Is tomorrow the day when we go home, Mother? Very soon I will be able to tell her yes. Our stay has been somewhat of a trial, though I have been grateful to the good doctor and his staff in their dedication to our treatment and recovery. Leonard's death had put us in such a severe state of melancholy that I feared we would never escape it. These past few years have been more difficult than any in my life, and my dear Marcella, after all that she has had to endure, has become my strength, my flame of hope. I must be honest with you, sister. Upon our arrival here, I carried a hatred in my heart for Justice Saunders and Counselor McCarty but I have now come to realize that perhaps they were men through whom the Lord's hand had been at work in placing us where we could grow beyond this tragedy. Though I did not know it at the time, those days being dark in my memory. Even as my pen writes these words, I can almost smell the cedars in the yard waiting for us to return. Though I would be lying if I were to say that I have no trepidation about living once again in our house without Leonard. It will feel strange for us without his presence. But I cannot think about that at this point. Marcella needs to be strong now, as Leonard was in life. He was strong for both of us. And now, with the strength of our friends and prayers, I know we can return home and begin to rebuild after our tribulation. I expect to be busy in the coming weeks, preparing for our departure from here, so if you don't receive anything in writing, know that I will write you as soon as we get back home. Thank you for your undying support and strength that you have been so generous with since our arrival. Love always your sister, Clara. Now, Clara mentioned in that letter that they would be getting out soon, and she wasn't wrong. Due to overcrowding at the asylum, they let Clara out. 
And back in those days, there was no aftercare, no supervision. So without a husband, a family to go home to, no one knows exactly where she ended up. Two years after Clara was discharged from the asylum, kids in her county started disappearing without a trace. Apparently, some of the kids reported that there was candy that had been left on their windowsills. And at first, none of the kids wanted to tell their parents. They would just gladly eat the candy because telling their parents would mean that the parents would look into it and they wouldn't get any more. Eventually, some of the wrappers on the candy had notes written on them. Some of them said, come out and play, signed the candy lady. Through the course of 10 years, a lot of kids went missing without a trace. As local law enforcement started to investigate these disappearances, one of the local farmers found something truly disturbing. He found candy wrappers out in his field, and when he opened them, he found that there was small, rotting teeth inside of those wrappers. One of the deputies in charge of investigating these disappearances was found on a field with forks gouged into his eyes and a pocket full of candy. Legend says that the kids that disappeared were lured away by the candy lady, taken to a field where she would pull out their teeth and use a fork to stab them. The kids were never found. To this day, parents use this cautionary tale to scare their kids into never accepting candy from a stranger. And Clara, her whereabouts were never known. There is no record of when she passed. Now is that because she never left? scary. So that was the urban legend of Clara Crane, the candy lady. And next, I have a listener story from Kat. Kat, thank you for sending in your listener story. If you have any spooky tales, any run-ins with true crime, I'll let you know at the end of the episode on how you can send those in. Those are awesome to read. I would love to read them to everyone. All right. So Kat sent in two different stories, and they're both really good. I'll start off with reading her email, and that is, Hi, I've just discovered your podcast, and I love, love, love it. Thanks, Kat. We love you for listening and for sending in a listener story, which is really, really, really awesome. And she continues, I just listened to your Guatemalan spook spook episode and have tons of stories to share, but I'll share two. I'll be as vaguely specific as I can in this story. In 2009-ish, I worked in an unnamed city with children in an unnamed after-school program. When the program was over for the day, we transport the kids home. On one particular evening, we went to drop one of the kids off and his mother was not home. Mom's boyfriend met us in the driveway and we all had knowledge that this man existed, and we dealt many times with him, but needed permission from mom to drop the kid off with him. Boyfriend called her on his phone, and I spoke with her. I knew her voice. She identified herself as mom, etc. We were sure she was mom. She gave us permission to drop the kid off. 
We said goodnight to the kid and to the mom's boyfriend and went on about our business. The next morning, there was a story on the news about a car that was found in the city with a dead body in the trunk. Turned out to be mom's boyfriend's car. When I got into work, everyone had heard about the story and myself and three others called mom and she was in tears. She'd seen the news, did not know the woman, but apparently the car had been stolen and boyfriend had nothing to do with the body in the trunk. Turned out to be a legit story on his part. He had nothing to do with it. However, the not knowing who was in the trunk or if this car was at the house when we dropped the kid off was terrifying or not knowing if it was the kid or the mom, the poor woman murdered in the trunk, truly terrifying. Yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine those few moments of just hearing the story, recognizing the car, cat, and then thinking, holy crap, is that the mom that, you know, to one of the kids? That's really, really scary. Thanks for that story, though. Now, for her second story, this is where it has a little bit of a run-in with true crime. I'll explain. Every year since the beginning of time, my family spends one to two weeks in the Outer Banks of North Carolina each summer. We always rent a beach house, and sometimes we will rent the same house a couple of years in a row. Around 2005-ish, we rented one particular house and stayed in it each year, maybe two or three years. It was oceanfront, a pretty good price for an oceanfront house. It had a hot tub, a private access to the beach, and enough bedrooms and bathrooms to accommodate everyone who went. My mom's friend came for a couple of days one year, and me and my now husband got stuck in a room with bunk beds. After my mom's friend left, we moved into that room, which was more comfortable. It had two twin beds. One night, one night we were laying down to go to sleep, and after a little while, my now husband leaped up and screamed, What the fuck? and scared me so bad. I turned on the light, and he was visibly shaken. He said he felt the bed shake, and then felt as if something was crawling into the bed with him, similar to the feeling of a cat crawling on a bed-like weight being distributed from his legs up to his shoulders. It was not me, and no animals were in the house. We slept upstairs for the rest of the week on the couch. Fast forward to 2009, a story came on the TV about murders in Farmville, Virginia. The boyfriend of a girl who had killed her family by bludgeoning them to death with a hammer and a maul, a kind of axe. The boyfriend was a juggalo and was an aspiring rapper, like insane clown posse. <laughs> Randomly, the house we stayed at the beach, the haunted ocean front house, was owned by the family that was murdered. It was rented through a rental company, so we stayed in an oceanfront house of a family who was murdered, and perhaps the ghost that attacked my husband was foreshadowing the murders? Also, the family owned an antique shop in the area of Farmville, and some of Rose's dresses from the movie Titanic came from that antique shop. Being woken up by a bed being shaken... Absolutely fuck no. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, and I can't imagine you waking up being told that. You're like, let's get the fuck out of here. 
So thank you so much, Kat, for those stories. And Kat also sent in a link to those murders. And so I'm going to give you a quick recap of that true crime story that she believes maybe had something to do with her now husband being scared while they were at that rental. The story of the Farmville murders starts with Richard Samuel McCroskey. He was born in 1988 and he lived in California with his mother and father and had a rocky home life. His parents had recently separated in 2018. Also that year, he began an online romance, started talking back and forth with a girl back in Virginia who was also into the same small genre of music that he was aspiring to be a rapper in. He wanted to be a horrorcore rapper. And this genre, apparently, I had to look this up, is a genre of music that sings, talks, raps about slaying people and chopping people up. Now, for whatever reason... 16-year-old Emma Niederbrock back in Virginia, who was literally a pastor's daughter, was into this kind of music and carried on a relationship with Richard. Now, in September of 2019, Richard was super excited. He was going to get a break from his home life, and he was going to finally meet Emma in person after having a year-long relationship online. Emma's parents were Deborah Kelly and Mark Niederbrock. Mark was a pastor at a local Presbyterian church. And Dr. Deborah Kelly was a 53-year-old professor of sociology and criminal justice at Longwood University. Both respected members of their community. Mark and Deborah had been divorced for nine months. Emma was staying with her mom. Emma was 16 years old. She had a friend who was 18 named Melanie Wells. Melanie's parents had recently had to move out of state, but in order for Melanie to finish high school on time, she'd stayed behind and was staying with Emma and her mother, Deborah. Richard McCroskey was set to fly in into Virginia on September 9, 2009. The concert, Strictly for the Wicked, was set to happen on September 12. Now, because Emma was only 16 years old at the time, her parents opted to escort all three of them to the concert. So Emma, Melanie, and Richard. According to the reports, it's not very clear on whether it happened the day of the concert, on their way back, or maybe the day after. Nonetheless, Richard saw some text from Emma going to another boy. This enraged him because he thought they were exclusive. Two days after the concert, on September 14, 2009, the reports say that Richard first attacked Melanie Wells, who was sleeping in a sofa in the first floor den. And then he went upstairs to Deborah Kelly, who was in an upstairs room, and finally attacked Emma in her downstairs bedroom. His weapon was a maul. Now, for those of you that don't know what a maul is, it's a tool that's a sledgehammer on one side and an axe on the other. It's usually used for splitting wood. None of the three victims had any defensive wounds on them, which is indicative that none of them 
woke up before they were attacked. By 3 a.m. on September 15th, he had murdered Emma, her mom Deborah, and her friend Melanie. Three days after the murder of these three, Mark Niederbrock showed up to the house and Richard wasted no time and attacked him with the same maul as he was coming into the house. He did the best that he could to try and hide the evidence, try and clean up the bloody den, and moved Mark's body up to Emma's room. At one point, Richard recorded himself in a video saying that he knew that he had to pay for what he had done and contemplated taking his own life. Before the police knew about these murders, Melanie's mom called into the Virginia's police department asking for a welfare check on the house that her daughter Melanie was staying at. She hadn't been able to get a hold of her, and every time she called the house phone, she would reach Richard, and he would tell her a different story every single time. When the police arrived at the home, Richard told the police that Melanie was at the movies with a friend. Because nothing seemed to awry, the police left. And then Melanie's mother called again, called the police and told them to go please to the house again. And this time is when the police found the initial three bodies. From the first time that police had been at the house to the second time, Richard had taken Mark's car and attempted to flee. As Richard was driving, he wrecked Mark's car. The police that showed up to the accident scene did not know about the murders yet, so they cited him for driving without a license, but did not arrest him. Richard then took a cab over to the Richmond International Airport because he was trying to get on a flight back to California. He eventually called the police and confessed to the murder. The police caught up with him at the airport where he had spent the night in the baggage claim area. They arrested him and charged him with first-degree murder, robbery, and grand larceny because of the stealing of the car. Later, he was charged with six counts of capital murder, and Richard did not fully cooperate with police after his arrest. The police took Richard's computer, house phones, and more than a dozen paper bags full of evidence from his home. He was charged with six counts of capital murder per Virginia criminal law. On September 20, 2010, a little over a year later from the murders, Richard pleaded guilty of the four murders, and although he was facing the death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison. That's the creepy story of the Farmville murders as well. Kat, I can't thank you enough. That was awesome. Um, it was a nice little research piece. So thank you for even sending me the link in your email and for both of the stories. Now, if you want to send in your listener story, I'm going to give you all the details of where you can do that. You can email us and that email is a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. All one word a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on instagram which is stranger danger a true crime podcast 
and you can send us your listener's story through a message there. You can find us on Facebook, Stranger Danger, colon, a true crime podcast, and you can go a step further and join the Stranger Danger, colon, murder lovers. That's where you're going to find the exclusive content, all the pictures that go along with the stories, and that way, if you're visual like me, you get to put faces to the names and get to know a little bit of information that is not known to everyone, maybe. So, just a lot of love goes into that for you guys. We want to make sure that you get a full immersive experience almost on every case. If there's extra materials on it, we happily share it with you. Let's see. There's also Twitter, which is SD True Crime Pod. We hope to have Mackenzie back soon to continue the spooky season. And again, be on the lookout for the contest slash giveaway. <laughs> on Instagram. That's just going to be the best platform for you to to get entries into the contest. Now, if you don't have an Instagram, but you still want to join the contest, send us a listener story. We're going to be giving out bonus entries into the contest if you send us a listener story. So we, we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear your run-ins with true crime and also your spooky stories. Those are my favorite think of it as a birthday present to me, if you will. So <laughs> I am looking forward to this entire month. I hope to bring you some cases or content or more urban legends. And that's it, I think. Have a good night. Stay safe. <laughs>